I trust if you're at all familiar with Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, you'll agree with me, and we're in good company because Calvin somewhere says it, that this is among the most lovely, the most comprehensive, and yet the most concise summations of the gospel, the good news of God's grace toward his people in Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Welcome back to Roundtable, a podcast produced by Mid-America Reform Seminary. This is episode 51, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for joining us. In our continuing series on Christ-centered preaching from the faculty, Dr. Venema brings us a word from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, perhaps one of the most concise summations of the gospel, as you heard it from Calvin. His message is titled, For We Are God's Poem, and was originally given at Zion United Reformed Church in Ripon, California. May you be blessed by this message. Take a listen. Look at the whole passage, but especially what is said to us in the last verse, the summarizing verse, verse 10. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1, let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And notice again that last verse, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May the Lord bless our reading and hearing of his word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I trust if you're at all familiar with Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, you'll agree with me and we're in good company because Calvin somewhere says it, that this is among the most lovely the most comprehensive, and yet the most concise summations of the gospel, the good news of God's grace toward his people in Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a grand, memorable gospel passage. The only thing we preachers can do with it is make it less lustrous than it actually is get out of the way. 
It's a passage, I say, that sets forth the gospel, which means good news. I think it's Tim Keller, if you know who that is. Not recommending him one way or the other, but he made a very interesting comment once. He says, a lot of ministers talk from the pulpit as though all they have is pious advice. Do this, don't do that. And if you do this, follow the formula, it's all going to fall out well for you in your marriage, family, or whatever your circumstance. So I have pious advice. But he says the gospel is literally news, first and foremost. And not just any kind of news, it's good news, the best of news. I always remember once hearing... A sermon preached, again, I'm not recommending preachers, I'm just giving you my source, lest you think I'm stealing something. I uh, once heard a minister in the PCA, D. James Kennedy, now fallen asleep in the Lord, uh, making the comment that you can sum up all religions, you name it, fill in the blank, in one word. Do. This is what you have to do. If you want to make yourself presentable to God and you want to know His blessing, this is what you have to do. Well, he said, the Christian faith isn't what you have to do, firstly. It's what God has done. The good news is that though dead in trespasses and sins, that's where God found you, by his undeserved grace, his immeasurable grace, by his sovereign initiative, he's lifted you up and made you alive in Christ so that you might be a trophy, a monument to the power of his work of recreation, making you after the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. It's all about what God has done and is doing. By the way, one last introductory comment. Uh, The book of Ephesians, like many of the Apostle Paul's epistles, has some interesting gospel grammar. And you boys and girls thought you had a couple days off school. Well, school on Sunday morning. Verbs in various languages have various moods, right? Not grumpy and happy moods, but they're called the indicative mood, the imperative mood. And if we were to get real fancy and you were to scratch your head and say, Mom, what is this talking about? Optative and subjunctive mood. The two that are most significant in Ephesians are the indicative and the imperative. And you know, of course, boys and girls, what the indicative mood does. It tells you what is the case. It describes reality. If I were to say I'm a professor, that's who I am, then you would have a right, if you were my student, to say, well, then teach. Teach. You were to say, I am a farmer, then I would have a right to say, then plant the seed, till the soil, do the things that farmers do if that's who you are. The imperative mood, 
arises out of the indicative. It tells us what we are obliged and summoned, called to do because of who we are. And you say, well, what does that have to do with our passage? Well, in a remarkable way, the entire passage is from beginning to end in the indicative. And here's a real surprise. Even our life as redeemed Christians, in the power of the Spirit of Christ given us, the good works, so-called, that we're called to walk in, they're not our work added to Christ's work. He does his part, we do ours. He begins, we conclude. Now, even our good works are those works indicative, says Paul, for which God in Christ created us that we should walk in them. It's all in the indicative. This is what God has done. This is what God is doing. Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul tells us in this passage together. There are two things that we need to notice. First of all, he begins with a remarkable, striking description of something that I can be confident is true of every person in this room, myself included. He uses the word all. He excludes no one, Jews as well as Gentiles. All who are saved were once dead in trespasses and sins, but we have become by grace, through Christ, those who are alive in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. And the second thing that he describes in the passage is, if that's the case, though once dead in trespasses and sins, made alive in Christ, what is God's purpose? For what are you destined? Well, it's his intention that you walk in good works, the very works that God has prepared in advance, that you should walk in them. We begin with the first thing. Now, one thing you could not say about the Apostle Paul in this passage is that he was trying to tickle the ears of his listeners. One commentator I was reading on Ephesians 2 said the first several verses are among the ten things you won't hear in church nowadays. <laughs> Maybe that was a little exaggerated, but uh, he paints a very bleak portrait, a little bit like that black curtain that photographers sometimes use in order to bring out the beauty of your handsome or beautiful face so that you sparkle and you shine uh, against that nondescript, not distracting in any way or calling attention to itself, background. He says this, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all, notice the all, no exceptions, whether, as he puts it in the next chapter, you be a Jew or a Gentile, a son or a daughter of Adam, whether Jewish or Gentile, without exception, this is your story. 
as one fallen in Adam. This is the truth, dare I say the gospel truth, that we need to acknowledge and recognize and own. This is who I was, or if outside of Christ, who I still am. Not on life support spiritually, not like an ember in a fire that is about to burn out altogether, needing merely to be fanned into flame, not in a circumstance where you can help yourself and then God will do the rest. No, spiritually dead. There was an older theologian in the church in North America, in the Presbyterian tradition, you may have heard of him, Gerstner, John Gerstner, who once used a fairly up-to-date, he was ahead of his time, analogy for what Paul is saying here. He says, we are all of us as fallen sons or daughters outside of Christ in Adam, spiritual zombies. We're the walking dead. We look like we have existence. But from a spiritual vantage point, we're without God and without hope. We are, by virtue of our sins and transgressions, as he puts it in this passage, by nature properly children of God's wrath, properly liable to that judgment condemnation that brings death. Now, I notice when you come from the Midwest and you're in California that there are a lot of people who look really alive. They drive fancy cars, and they keep themselves very fit in the lovely weather, and they seem to be having what some would call true life. But if outside of Christ, it's a walking death. I remember a speaker some years ago who told the story, this is a true story, of a fellow rather wealthy successful, who asked to be buried in a rather macabre fashion in a cemetery whose name I forget, but it's one of these Hollywood-type cemeteries in Southern California, the L.A. area. It becomes a tourist attraction, no less. This man literally asked to be buried, seated in his Cadillac convertible, with a dead cigar in his mouth and a martini in his hand. And you say, well, that's not possible. This is California. It's possible. Now that's the picture that the Apostle Paul paints. Your heart may be beating, but if you don't have living communion with the true God through Christ by His Spirit, if you're walking in disobedience and in a way that is contrary to God's holy law, you're spiritually dead. You're subject to our three sworn enemies. The world, of which Paul speaks, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, and your own sinful flesh. You're in bondage to 
powers whom you serve, who have mastery over you, and who pay you for your service in death. Life that is no life, at best merely existence. And yet, says the Apostle Paul, verse 4, but God. It's a remarkable contrast. First three verses represent who we are left to ourselves, outside of the reach and the working of God's grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that with all that you've become as one who is alive in Christ, you might live and be one who shows forth the unmeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. If it's true, if it's true that left to ourselves we are and were dead, if we've become alive spiritually, if we know God through Christ, if our sins have been forgiven, if we've been restored to God's favor, if we've fallen heir to the rich promises of eternal life in communion with God and victory over all the powers of sin and darkness, it's all of it, all of it, because of what God has done. In fact, those first two words in verse 4 are remarkable. They tell the whole story. Here's your testimony. You need a a lead-in in telling others about what God has done in your life as a Christian. You share with them the gospel. You can do it at least by way of an opening in two words. But God, were it not for his rich mercy, were it not for his initiative, Were it not for the miracle of his recreative power and grace through Christ, I would still be dead in trespasses and sins. I would still be in the miry clay. I would still be a person without hope and without God in the world. Now, there's never been a text in all of the Word of God that strips out of your mouth the hint of a boasting in the presence of others. And sometimes people like myself who grow up in a Christian home and have known God's grace and have been surrounded and nurtured in and with it from infancy onward, we think, well, this is a story told about some but not my story. Well, where did it begin? What accounts for? Paul says it, doesn't he, in in Corinthians? Ask yourself, what do you have that you've not received? Can you think of anything? You were raised in a Christian home. How is it that you had a Christian father or mother? How is it that they brought you to church? 
Don't boast, brothers or sisters, in the presence of any lost sinner. Don't look down your long nose in contempt, disrespect toward anyone, however deep, however low, however far from God's grace they may be. Paul takes the wind out of anyone's sails who would go about, strut about, saying, I am going to take my boast in something I have done. You know those two words, but God. I have on my desk at the seminary a little plaque, which is in Latin. It comes from something that Professor Ursinus had on his desk in uh, the University of Heidelberg. Apparently the students were the same then as they are now. It basically in translation says, friend, whoever enters here, help me with my work. Do what you have to do quickly. And if so, leave, please. Quickly. Leave quickly, it says. One student looked at it and said, I know what that means. He said, don't bother me. Don't bother me. I said, well, no, that's not quite it. I just say, don't spend three hours of my time. That's all I ask. But uh, I'm getting at this. Uh, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse at the 10th Presbyterian Church, he actually lived at the church. There was a quarters there for the pastor. Had on his pastor's desk a plaque with those two words from verse 4 at the beginning, but God, and then three periods, an ellipsis. And in a sermon once, he mentioned this, and he said, it was my delight when people would ask me, uh, Pastor Barnhouse, what's, what's this plaque but God? Oh, he said, I'm glad that you ask. You've opened the door. I'm going to walk through it. Let me tell you the story of, of Donald Gray Barnhouse. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was dead but I'm now alive. I was once blind to God's grace and glory in Jesus Christ, but now I see. And how is that so? But God being rich in mercy. I can still remember as a little boy in a church my father served in New Zealand when an elderly woman came to the Lord late in life by God's grace, and she said to my father, I want to sing, I forget the exact song, but it has that language born out of the imagery of the Scriptures, where he took me up out of the miry clay, and he set me high upon a rock, and he dressed me in the garments of royal sons and daughters. He prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So we've been made alive, and it's all God's grace, mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. But now notice verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Now that all follows. It tumbles out. The word workmanship there, F.F. Bruce says it could well be rendered, we are his God's masterpiece. We are God's work of art. It actually in the Greek language is a word from which we get in the English the word poem. Now it's not poem in the way we think of poems. It's poem in the sense of, as Bruce puts it, a masterpiece, a work of art. 
It's like Michelangelo who once was asked, what are you doing when he was chipping away at a faceless, uh, strange piece of rock? He said, I'm liberating an angel. (laughs) I'm creating something lovely and magnificent out of this nondescript piece of granite. Well, that's the force of what Paul is saying. You are what you are. You have become alive in Christ, made to sit with Christ in the heavenlies. You have and are in your identity God's workmanship, handiwork. Notice he uses the verb created. You think God's work in the first creation, calling this world in all of its extraordinary beauty and grandeur into existence by his power and wisdom, that that's a pretty manifest display of his glory? How often do we think of ourselves as believers in Christ, as God's handiwork? You've looked into the face of a little baby, newly born, and you cradle that child in your arms, and you count the fingers and toes, and you, you're really almost, certainly if you're a parent, and most especially if you're a grandparent, you, your eyes are wide open. You, it's profound. In our area along the expressway, there's a lovely sign somewhere you come by and it says, who says there's no evidence for the existence of God? And then there's the portrait of a newly born baby. Now our culture may miss it, and we would too if our eyes were not open by God's grace. But we should view each one of us as brothers and sisters in Christ We should see ourselves in the mirror of this word of the Lord. Do you know who you are? Once dead in trespasses and sins, you've become in Christ and by his grace a manifest display of God's handiwork. I understand there's a certain misunderstanding of what it is to have something called self-esteem. But there is properly for Christians, when they know themselves in Christ, that there's a proper sense in which they esteem the work of God's hand by his grace in making them who they are. For we are God's masterpiece created spiritually in the new creation in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And just briefly on that, brothers and sisters, God did not redeem us, make us alive by grace, display the power of his mercy grace in Christ in us, in order to leave us where he found us. He wants to conform us to the image of his Son. He wants by the Spirit 
to cause us no longer to walk as we once walked, but to begin to walk if even only little baby steps, a small beginning, in a way that corresponds to what he has in store for us. You see, that's one of the reasons we needn't worry that if we magnify too much God's grace, someone's going to draw the wrong conclusion. Well, then why not sin that grace may abound? That won't work. Because this too is grace. That you should begin to walk. It's interesting that Paul uses a redundancy. He could have simply said, which God prepared that we should walk in them. But that's not enough. He puts it, which God prepared, of course, beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so you could say that the Christian life is, in some respects, a wonderful discovery of what God has in store for us, of what God intends to do in and through us. And whatever your particular vocation, great or small, preacher, teacher, farmer, laborer, business person, whatever it might be, if you're in Christ and you're walking, even though imperfectly and with small baby steps, in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, your life is a an ongoing, remarkable telling the story of what God, by his grace, has done and is doing and will eventually bring to fullness, perfection, when his work in us is perfected in glory. And so the question for us this morning, congregation, is very simply this. Do you know who you are? what you've become, from what God has brought you? And is it manifest, both to you and as well others, that you are a sinner saved solely by grace in order that you might live and bespeak and witness to others of the unspeakable riches of God's grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus? May God grant it for his glory. Amen. Well, it's good to be reminded of that question. Do you know who you are, what you've become, since God in his mercy saved you in Christ Jesus? Thank you, Dr. Venema, for these comforting words from Ephesians. Next week, we'll continue this first slot of Christ-centered sermons from our professors with a message from Reverend Mark Vanderhurt speaking on Christ and the flight to Egypt. I hope you can join us for that next week. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu, YouTube, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.